Episode 2, Be Authentic. Michael Kudurka speaks about pharmaceutical brand marketing. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today I speak with Michael Kudurka, who is an experienced pharmaceutical marketer. I like what he says about being authentic. Michael suggests that pharmaceutical brands these days really need to lock down a patient population where the brand can legitimately add the most value and then own that market by developing strong value props for each stakeholder along the patient journey. Michael says that in the long run, this is a much better strategy than fighting for a tiny piece of a gigantic pie, especially when the clinical differentiation across such broad sweeps of patients is rarely well-defined and even more rarely will motivate prescribers to switch up their current standard of care. So it was interesting because soon after my talk with Michael, I heard a guy named Ian Altman speak on another podcast. His message dovetailed perfectly with Michael's points of view. So I immediately went out and bought Ian's book, which is called Same Side Selling. In it, Ian advises that sellers and marketers alike aim to be, as he puts it, some things to the right people. Ian Altman says that when a buyer senses the seller is more interested in selling than in delivering value, trust vanishes. And I can easily see how this applies to pharmaceutical brands. The other pundit I'd like to mention here is Seth Godin and his tribe philosophy. Basically what Seth Godin suggests is that by finding people who really can get behind your brand, who can really champion it, that's actually the fastest way to increase market share. He says that strategies which involve coming up with some watered-down message which is going to appeal to the market at large rarely work. So this all ties back to what I talk about with Michael today, which is being authentic, number one, and number two, really nailing your message to the various target markets. So let's get on with the interview. Today, I'm talking with Michael Kudurka, a longtime pharmaceutical marketing director who I have had the pleasure of meeting this past year. Although, unbeknownst to either of us at the time, our paths also overlapped back in the golden years at Pharmacia. In his most recent marketing position, Michael was able to transform his pharmaceutical brand into a customer solution, and I'd like to talk to him about that today and also how he managed to pull that off. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Michael. Hey, how are you? I am doing well this morning. So can you just talk a little bit about how you got into pharmaceutical marketing? Was it your childhood dream? <laughs> I, I It was fate, but it was not a childhood dream. I think we would have had astronaut and fireman on that list. But um, so I actually came into pharma from defense. I was, I was uh, five years in the defense industry before I got into pharmaceuticals and, you know, focused on nuclear powered submarines and aircraft carriers and armored people carriers and those sorts of things. And as the defense budgets were getting tight and um, I was really trying to find a place where I wasn't taking a pay cut every year to keep my job and really for a place I could grow, I started to look at at pharma. My dad was a, an organic chemist who worked in quality control in a number of pharma companies. My mom was a nurse, so it was sort of a, a natural fit. Where marketing came into play was with my first job at uh, Uptown, where I carried the bag up in the Boston sales area. Uh, I really got very interested in the strategies and the tactics that supported the strategies and whole the whole 
marketing, business, development, and uh, around a brand. So I went, I got into pharmaceuticals uh, initially as sales and then into marketing uh, about seven or so years later, where my first position was in managed care marketing and then moved into brand marketing and in cardiovascular, uh, then osteoporosis marketing at Roche, then going into much smaller of what I call micropharma uh, in cystic fibrosis and, uh, and then uh, more recently at Aptalis, uh, looking at upper GI for things like H. pylori and duodenal ulcer disease and, and drugs and development for EOE, which is this narrowing of the esophagus. How do you think the market environment has changed the role of the healthcare marketer over the years? So my career sort of or telling and all that, I mean, when I first got into marketing from the field, it was a managed care marketing, very, very siloed. We were we were asked to you know work with account managers. We were asked to to work with the brand team to start to to translate that brand positioning and and um, uh, messaging into managed care positioning and messaging, and then and then roll that out tactically to the account managers. I think what's what's gone on now is we're really starting to look at each of the stakeholders that are involved and understanding their value as a, a patient moves through the disease progression. So a case in point, let's say we're talking about cystic fibrosis and we have the, the pulmonologist and we have the nurse case manager and we have the dietitian and we have the social worker and we have the uh, pharmacist. All of these people are part of the group that that manages this this patient, uh, and I think that I think where you know things have started changes is we're not seeing them as as disjointed segments. We're really starting to understand this is a continuum, and we need to be cognizant of that as we're trying to come up with solutions to to help out in these disease areas to make a difference. Could you give sort of an example of how? How a pharmaceutical marketing strategy with the disjointed stakeholders, as you you just said, might be different now as you're thinking of them in more of a continuum. It's a good question. I, I think I think what changes, at least the the approach that that I've tried to to employ as I've done a different uh, worked on different brands, excuse me, is really to understand, start out with that patient journey and understand how they're diagnosed, uh, understand. Let's say in the case of the product I worked on more recently in H. pylori, you see a patient probably dealing with this, uh, an infection. They don't feel quite right with their stomach. They are going to over-the-counter medications. Uh, step two, if that doesn't work after a while, they maybe go to their primary care physician. Maybe the primary care physician says, hey, you've got H. pylori and, and we're going to put you on this medication. Or they or they just give them you know, a PPI, which is a little more as a prescription uh, level PPI, and that doesn't work. And then they get referred to a specialist and maybe they step it up and start dealing with a product that's actually, you know, a product for H. pylori and they go through that and then they're maybe post-tested to see if they've eradicated it. So in that scenario, you're needing to understand where the prescription's filled, understand the, the prescriber's uh, needs, understand the patient's needs and maybe frustration with their, you know, their, their sort of spending three or four or five years trying to get diagnosed and treated. You're just looking at your brand then and seeing what attributes of this brand, of this brand, uh, match up with the different stage that that patient is going through their journey and the and the caregiver that is a part of that uh, treatment decision and uh, treatment completion to resolve their problem. So how did you do that successfully for your last brand? Well, we really were looking at uh, the main challenge there was was that 
you have a, a resistance problem with most antibiotics because of the overuse of macrolide antibiotics. And in this in this category, your choices were between macrolide a macrolide approach and a non-macrolide approach. And what we did was to dig a little deeper to understand what what a payer would need to understand to change the way they were looking at treating H. pylori. What would a prescriber need to understand to change the way they're thinking about treating H. pylori? You know, in this case, you know, I look at the the players in this in this patient scenario, and direct communication with the patient probably was was not the most valuable thing for us to focus on as far as a, a segment of the disease area. It was really the payer and and the and the physician. And so we focused on showing and demonstrating what the level of resistance and utilization of macrolide antibiotics were to, you know, highlight where we may have a be a better option. And what you, we found as you dig into the literature is that a lot of the literature uh, more recently versus literature from, say, 2007 is really pointing to this concern that the, the key opinion leaders have over the overutilization, therefore the lack of effectiveness of clarithromycin-based therapies which is a macrolide. So what I thought was really impressive about what you managed to pull off was that you identified a gap in care. You identified a potential problem and then positioned your product as a way to solve that unmet uh, need or that potential risk that patients could potentially experience. I think a lot of brand managers position their brand, you know, we're very effective or, 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 you know, we have great efficacy, but they're not really thinking about what the need is in the market. Well, I think that what we've, I've tried to do with, with our brands, the brands I worked on, is is I asked myself this question, um, because when we're out there focused on prescribers, you're asking them to, to do a lot. You know, you're, you're in a 30-second conversation over time, you are trying to impart enough information that your physician is going to be excited about your brand and what it can do to help their patients resolve their problem. And that's that's not easy to do, one. But two, you are, in a lot of cases, dealing with a physician that has been, or a prescriber, excuse me, that has been uh, utilizing or, or found their, their go-to products that always work for them. Um, it's, you know, I grew up at the Upjohn Company. I said this, you know, first off, it'd be very difficult for, for anyone to have me not give my kids Motrin when they've got a fever or an ache or a pain or, or what have you. Uh, it's it's always worked for me. And, and I just, you know, it's, it's a habit. And I think the same thing with prescribers. You're asking them to break a habit. On top of that, with that 30-second discussion, you're also trying to uh, make them your brand champion because when the pharmacy calls, when the, the healthcare plan says, hey, that's not a formulary, you need to uh, convey to that physician enough compelling information that lets them see that this product is something they have to be able to say, my patient has to be on this product because, and they have to feel very confident about that. And it's not about anything more than giving them enough information to have that confidence and experience to have that confidence to be, to be insistent. But uh, I think very often we, we don't sit there, we, we maybe show them a study, uh, maybe we uh, show them a coupon program. Those aren't, it wouldn't make me stop giving Motrin to my kids, right? If I had a coupon program uh, or I saw that Tylenol was equally effective to Motrin, I, I need, I need something to, to say, Hey, I need to change my 
don't have it. I need to rethink this. And you know, that was the focus when we when I was dealing with H. pylori. It was it was you know, finding that attribute of the brand and seeing how that overlapped with what the physician was trying to accomplish, uh, what what had happened in that patient's journey. Maybe they've been diagnosed or misdiagnosed, excuse me, a number of times and been trying to deal with this for years. And why would that be? Well. It might, in fact, be this this you know overuse of macrolide antibiotics, and there there in turn is causing a lack of success rate for the patient, a lack of success rate for um, eradicating this for the physician. So you're really looking for a way to give your physician good data, be confident in the product, a good experience in 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 utilizing the product, but then also really giving them a patient type that they can say, this is where I use this. This is this is my go-to product for this. And I think the challenge with that is a lot of times these are niche strategies um, that if you look at it from a, a forecasting standpoint, it gets kind of scary. You'll say, wow, I don't know what the value of that is. Or, you know, that's not enough that we want to make out of this asset. But in essence, giving a, a place where that physician can always use this product first line actually is a bigger win than trying to battle it out sometimes with head-to-head fighting for a, 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 a big piece of piece of pie or a small piece of a big piece of pie uh, versus really owning something uh, for your brand. So that, that And that's just an opinion from me. Let's just talk about that for a sec. I've heard the quote, in the niches, you'll find the riches. <laughs> So is is that kind of what you're you're saying? Or are you advocating trying to go for a first line? Well, I, I think so. You have an asset. And if you've developed it as a first line, I think that you need to look there. But I think a lot of times what you'll find with prescribers, as I just outlined, is that they they have through habit and through through a lot of experience have found out where they are comfortable using uh, certain products for certain patients with certain situations. And I think that uh, a lot of times you can have a greater, faster or more rapid success if you can give not only the physician a place to re- uh, succeed, uh, meaning a, a patient type or, or a niche, but your, your, your representatives as well. Because I think the other thing too is sometimes you, know, you create a, a strategy and you roll that out and the representatives are out there talking to doctors for 30 seconds and they're you know, having to you know, answer questions about the competition. They're fighting for this space in the physician's mind. And that space might be a long, long haul to get there. And you might get early success Successes with some early adopters, but you might the whole of the market, you know, the greater majority of prescribers might not come along uh, to you know where you position the brand as as a competitor to whatever their 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 habits uh, hooked on right now. But if you take a different approach and you come up with this niche approach where it's easier for physicians to say, absolutely, I'll use it there. Absolutely, I've had success there. You know, this is a, I'm glad you outlined this patient type. We go back to the days when you walk into a physician's office and you're bringing value. Um, you're creating a success story for the physician. You're also creating a success story for the for representatives which they will continue to repeat you know, the message and continue to follow the strategy that's been outlined. Because a lot of times you'll run into a situation where if that strategy is very, very difficult to implement, causes a lot of frustration uh, in the field and a lack of success, a good salesperson starts to look for other ways uh, and other attributes of the brand to to talk about that gets more receptivity from the prescriber, and that takes you off strategy, and therefore you have a splintered brand equity, which is which is you know a nightmare. You really don't want to be there. So, what's the biggest lesson that you learned in your journey to create solutions? I think the journey, Stacey, is is to not to say, "Hey, this is my brand, and this is what." I represent and try to say that this positioning statement is applicable to all the stakeholders in that patient journey and the patient continuum. I think the reality is the value to the prescriber is different than the value to the pharmacist and the value to the 
to the patient is different from the value of the say, nurse case manager or the dietitian. So you really need to come up with value messages and ways to go with each of those segments. And I think we, you also have to look at understand what the value of those segments are to your brand because each individual brand's assets makes it a different level of value to each of the stakeholders that patient continuum. So I think that the lesson really is don't create a one-size-fits-all messaging to be cognizant of the different messages that have to be created uh, for all the different stakeholders and then understanding which of those stakeholders have the most value uh, to your brand's success. Do you have any advice on transferring those or transforming those value messages into marketing? So in other words, once you figure out what the unique value is to the nurse practitioner or to the physician or to the payer, how do you disseminate that messaging to the different stakeholders or tell the the right story to the different stakeholders? Well, so there's there's a commitment on a lot of levels, right? So you're understanding who the who the important stakeholders are. Let's we'll go back to that example I had earlier when I was talking about H. pylori and talk about you know overall uh, macrolides versus non-macrolides and their resistance. As you look at the stakeholders in that in that discussion, you know we created a message you know, very uh, specifically for physicians and had uh, had good dialogue there, and they obviously were very aware of antibiotic resistance is something they're concerned about. And so that message worked well there. So that message really a detail piece and the representatives delivering the message, nothing different there. We went to the to the payer and started to talk about the extent of resistance and why we, you wanted to maybe manage this H. pylori category a little bit differently, looking at the, the classes of macrolide versus non-macrolide approaches that made sense to the payer where there was a challenge was with with the pharmacist in this and in that category what we were finding was pharmacy has uh, a number of generics that are available at the pharmacy and and when prescriptions would come through phone calls would go back to physicians saying hey i've got this on the shelf we could have individual prescriptions say for the components of that make up this this product, uh, you know, macrolide or non-macrolide, is it okay to to do that? And they would they would go ahead and get get the approval. What was interesting though is if you if we talked to the pharmacist now with the message about resistance and showed them that you know the information that we we had and and the how the current literature was saying you know we had to be concerned about macrolide versus non-macrolide in this in this category they they were very excited and they were very receptive and as we dug into just sort of all pharmacist research we found that pharmacy was really moving from uh, having, wanting to have a role that was just sort of there filling prescriptions really wants to move into a more valuable role where they are more partnering with with uh, physicians and being of more value in therapeutic decisions. And we started to wor- walk in or not work into uh, a program you know called Resistance Fighters where we wanted to better educate pharmacists on, on the new literature in the treatment of H. pylori, what the thought leaders were saying, why the, you know, the overuse uh, or maybe even not the finishing of prescriptions was causing a, you know, a problem and a resistance problem with, with macrolide-based therapies and, you know, how other options might be a good alternative. And therefore, you know, you're going to be able to get that option, for instance, by just sw- switching out to generics because it really wasn't available. So I think there, understanding a different, having a different insight with that segment, the pharmacists, uh, understanding their motivation and what value we could bring to the table, this consultative value with being a resistance fighter um, was just a different dynamic and that was a different way to, to serve it up. 
So that's a perfect example of not having a one-size-fits-all strategy, but making sure that each message that you're putting out into the marketplace is unique to the needs of the stakeholder that you're talking to. Interesting. Mm. So, so let's talk about collaboration for, for a moment, which is a big topic across the industry. I mean, obviously, you can't have exactly what you were talking about at, at the beginning. You can't have individually siloed stakeholders that don't speak to each other and then expect to have a patient with a unified treatment. So if pharmaceutical marketing wants to collaborate with other stakeholders along the journey, what does it take to, to do that? Well, I, I actually, as complicated as it is to to implement, it is. Um, I think it's a really easy answer. I think that if we all focus on being a stakeholder in the patient journey in a disease, and we focus on their quality, not more well, quality of life, yes, but you know, helping them live longer, helping them resolve their their issue uh, sooner, uh, help, helping them get back to normal in a reasonable or, or faster amount of time. I think that everybody who's involved in healthcare could agree that that's the that's the overall goal, and I think that that's the point that you that shared goal becomes the collaboration, and that's I think that's the easy answer. Let's talk about that for a sec because everyone can post the noble goal of patient outcomes on the board and say that we're all striving to achieve it, but when push comes to shove, each each stakeholder along the process does have certain. I'm going to say self-interested objectives as well. You know, from a pharmaceutical perspective, the object of the game is obviously to increase brand share. From an organizational, you know, if we're talking about, um, you know, an accountable care organization or we're talking about a, a hospital, their objective obviously is to potentially minimize costs. If you're talking about a payer, you know, same rules kind of apply. You know, all of these entities have an obligation to their own shareholders to achieve certain other objectives which may or may not be aligned to patient outcomes. Have you seen that interfere with an ability to collaborate? Well, that's a tough that's a tough question. I don't think it interferes with an ability to collaborate. I, I think, you know, it goes back to what we said earlier. You need to understand, at least from a pharma standpoint, what the value of your asset is as it's being viewed by those stakeholders. And to your point, the the value to a payer is is um, looking at cost. Uh, the value to the pharmacist is getting that medication to a patient at a, um, a good margin. Obviously, we're trying to design therapies that make a difference in patients' lives, but you have to pay for that research so you can create the next great thing as well. And you have to pay the salaries in order to to develop those medications. And uh, a lot of medications don't even make it to market. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's a high risk, high reward proposition there. So we're not living in a society where everything's free and, and things have costs and things have to have to be uh, have to be paid for in order to continue to do all the jobs we have in that in that uh, continuum for that patient. I, again, I think if you focus on the on the on the patient, uh, that's where your point of collaboration is. How you support your activity in that continuum, that's what business is about. Very interesting. What does management of pharma really need to be doing right now in order to support a brand's ability to show value to the target market and to collaborate with with stakeholders as we've been speaking about? So I think that you start off with a couple things. One, staying focused on the patient and how your therapy can impact that patient journey. And I think two, 
understanding the stakeholders and understanding what behaviors you're trying to create or modify. You know, in the case of the example I gave you earlier about, you know, changing someone's approach to something they've been doing for a long time. And so, and really having realistic goals on, on the impact of, of the brand and how it can, how it can make a difference for the, the patients and for the payers as well. But I think the problem in all this, and I think you outlined it in your last question, is we're using the word value. And value is a term that is tied back to dollars and cost savings. So if I'm creating a value proposition, that means I need to find a way to give you a less expensive option or to reduce the overall cost in treating the patient. I don't know if a patient's journey and life enhancing is necessarily interchangeable with a value proposition. So, you know, is your goal to give a patient less doses of a medication so they can complete their full uh, therapy and get the benefits of the therapy they just paid for? Or is it to bring together a bunch of other products that are maybe less expensive, but you end up taking, you know, four times the amount of medication in pill form to hope the patient finishes that prescription? Is it, you know, increasing life or longer quality of life, or is it looking at how we can get the least expensive uh, approach to sort of get the person through? It's a tough question, but I think if you, I think you focus on value, you're talking about focusing on cost. If you're talking about the patient, that's a different discussion. I've never necessarily heard anyone uh, say that before, and I think it's really interesting, a really interesting question to consider is, is value to the various stakeholders interchangeable with, with patient outcomes? It could be interesting to complicate. I think in some areas, it definitely is interchangeable, but you wonder how to move in spaces where it's not. Um, or you wonder whether with the new incentives that are coming up or being rolled out right now, whether that alignment will will start to overlap more. It's going to be interesting to see things how, how things develop. From a marketing standpoint, looking at the value your asset has to the people you're trying to communicate to and that patient continuum makes a lot of sense. But I think that value messaging, if you will, or creating a value proposition is about the patient journey, but it's it's really about dollars and cents. So I, I think that it's a trade-off. There, there, there's two different, there's two different um, discussions here. Um, I think the value proposition to the stakeholders is about the current uh, market. But I think that when you start to collaborate around the patient's journey and their outcome, what's right for that patient gets gets to be a big, a big challenge. And the answer actually might be personalized medicine, which is also things that people are looking at, right? So you really start to design a, a very, very individual uh, treatment plan based on that person's you know makeup. It'll be interesting to see how all of this change manifests. So let's take a quick detour because I'd really like to get your advice on on something that I'm asked frequently about. I interact with a number of different technology developers, mostly mobile app creators of mobile apps, and they are interested in working with pharma either to entice pharmaceutical brands to subsidize their app for patients or they feel that they have data that pharma might be interested in purchasing. Could you describe the data that you think that a pharmaceutical brand might be interested in purchasing or or what are the characteristics of that data that are must-haves? You have demographic data. Most of that data is available as opposed to a small vendor to someone who's relatively large. And you need that, you know, that secondary data that sort of lays out the, the overall demographics of the market, the number of patients that are 
in that basket and you know, the costs and so on and so forth. Then you have primary data that you collect on your own. And I think that probably the, the challenge a, an app developer might, might have with Pharma is that you generally, with the primary data, you're designing the, the questions and the, you know what you need to understand for, for your brands. And therefore, to have someone come in and maybe take a different methodology that may be questionable to you know, our analytics teams or to bring in a research we really didn't design and asked, asked a bunch of questions, not necessarily the questions we, we needed answers for, I, I think you'd be hard-pressed probably to, to quote-unquote sell that data uh, in because, again, not sure about the methodology, not sure about the questions, and therefore it's sort of, it's sort of a it's secondary data that maybe goes further I don't even know what the ends would be in some of that stuff. So I'm answering this off the top of my head. Sounded good. Taking the second part of that question, if I have an application and maybe it's a disease specific application, like um, helping people manage their symptoms or, or track their activity or it's some sort of wellness application, what are also the considerations that a brand marketer would have if they were evaluating an application like that or subsidizing an application like that? A couple things. Pharma really can't give stuff away. I mean, we're, we're under the same microscope that, uh, that a lot of industries are where I don't want to have budgets to give every, say, diabetes patient um, an app, if you will. At the same time, depending on the value of that app, you know, what it costs to develop and what we, we paid for it, um, if it has a high level of value, a lot of legal departments and a lot of companies would say, mm, that kind of feels like an enticement. That kind of feels like something we really shouldn't be doing. You know, is this making patients ask for something, a product, just so they can get their hands on that on that application? So I'm sure there's are ways around those things, but I think that there's certainly firewalls between the value of what we can can give away and what what's available out there. And then I, you know, I. I, I don't know if anybody has a, I don't know what it, what it costs to make an application. So, or, you know, for this application we're talking about. So, you know, the, the, the cost of it is, you know, sort of starts to come back to this, what that value is and whether I can be involved or not. And I think, I think too, you know, the second thing in all this is that if it is a, an application that is broadly usable for everyone, regardless of the medication they're on, those sorts of things, it gets hard for an individual brand to say, hey, I'm going to use my this year's budget money to pay for that. So that's one of the, the things you're going to, as far as a challenge. And then secondly, the question, if you're not the market leader, is is this going to help the competition you know, more or is it going to help me more? So, so those investment questions, you know, the value to your, your product, and then you're coming, it's coming out of your budget. Should I, should I divert funds that I was going to do something else and do this instead? Uh, certainly come to play. So it sounds like the app developers are going to need to do the same exact things that we've been talking about, figure out what the value is to the stakeholder. Yeah, I, you know, I think that with that said, if you if you were able to get with a brand team early on and develop the app together so it's gone through, say, concept reviews with their legal and regulatory, and they're comfortable with the way it was developed and, and what went into it, what questions were asked, and so on and so forth, I think you'd have a better shot. But that's a long-term relationship or discussion. So a little longer term, you're trying to catch it very, very in the, in the life cycle of developing that app, but you probably have greater success because you'd have uh, a partner from the beginning that wasn't going to run into any problems trying to get it approved once it was complete. Good advice. 
is there anything that we haven't covered today that you wanted to to get across? Uh, Stacey, I think I think they're great questions. I think that you know again looking at that whole patient continuum and and trying to uh, focus on all the stakeholders and and understanding where your customized message or your message has to be customized for the different stakeholders, I think allows you uh, probably a greater level of success. Let's talk about you for a sec. What, what's next for you, Michael? <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm looking for a new, a new home to land in and uh, hopefully, hopefully uh, it will, something will come, come to fruition soon. Well, I am confident that it will. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thanks, Stacey. So I hope you found that as interesting as I did. Uh, Michael Kadurka's email address is on the website, which you will find at relentlesshealthvalue.com. I also posted up in the show notes the link to the Ian Altman podcast, which I mentioned. I had heard him on Jamie Tardy's podcast. I also put a link up there to Ian Altman's book, which is on Amazon, which I am reading right now and am really into. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, definitely subscribe in iTunes and leave us a rating and review, which would certainly warm my heart. I hope you'll tune in next week.